0: John Summers is the motoring historian. He was a company car thrashing technology sales rep that turned into a fairly inept sports bike rider. Hailing from California, he collects cars and bikes built with plenty of cheap and fast and not much reliable. On his show, he gets together with various co-hosts to talk about new and old cars, driving, motorbikes, motor racing, and motoring travel. Good day, good morning, good afternoon. It, it's John Summers, the motoring historian here again with school friend Mark Gammy. How are Please. you, Mark?
1: I'm living the dream, baby.
0: Ah, love, pleased to hear it. Um, yeah, so um, just thought we would talk about US road trips today, thought we would talk about the conference that I did at, at um, Midway 2 last week. And, uh, and anything else that, that took our fancy for the next sort of 40 minutes or so, 45 or an hour, it's been an hour. Actually, they've all been different lengths because of course I can't edit for, um, for anything worth a damn. And so. we do talk a lot of shit. We do talk a lot of shit. And in fact, the last one, I, I, I edited episode three just, just yesterday. Cause I'm going to break down the third wall. This is one of the things about the real Housewives, right? If you're on the real housewives and you're splitting up with your husband, you can't be like, we're splitting up because he's her because I'm more famous and make more money than him because you're like referring to the show. You can't like refer to the show. Do you see what I mean? You can't break the third wall. And what they've done in some reality TV shows is, is you'll hear the producer talking as a way to make it seem more real. You'll hear the producer like asking questions because we all know that the third wall's there. So why not? Well, I'm not going to pretend like, you know, it's just us chickens talking. This is not just us chickens talking. The fact that it's being recorded changes what we're doing, right?
1: No, I'm totally natural.
0: Well, well, okay. Right. Okay. But that is, in fact, whilst that's, as we, let's break down the third wall completely. That is what I'm trying to achieve. It's it's the Mike Brewer, Alain de When you meet the real person, they are similar to the persona that they portray on the TV because it's really hard to do that if you. This is why I'm doing the voice because I can be the real me in conversation with you over, over on with voice. But I can't be the real with me, if if I'm I'm sitting here looking at myself talking to you here, I couldn't be as scruffy as i am or well maybe i could i don't know i mean this is the the youtube way i mean in youtube nowadays we got all these shots up people's noses and all the shaky camera and all of this kind of blair witch bollocks isn't it so i don't know maybe i could do that but i don't i don't feel comfortable with that because when you make it a visual medium you make it mostly about the visual and i don't want it to be mostly about the visual i don't know i mean i was watching that Aidan millwood formula one site before we uh, we came online here and and uh, he's interesting because he sets out to tell a great story that he researches really well but the photographs are shitty and he himself is is not the most visually appealing bloke and yet he's happy to put you know he himself I always think his office environment looks a bit like yours Gary um you know he, he's happy to have that kind of 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 plain, you know, I'm just at my house. And I've done all this research about Formula One, because I'm interested in it. And I'm sharing it with you. And I'm using Wikipedia images to, you know, break up the monotony a little bit. But the main thing is what I'm saying, rather than the visual image, which takes us back to just go drive, doesn't it, which I'm going to plug a little bit, because I actually watched those videos that we did a couple of years ago. And I think they're interesting, because Um, I actually don't think they're too bad. I just think when you watch a YouTube video, you're expecting like a Top Gear style review of a car. You're not expecting B-roll with insightful commentary. If there's B-roll, you're expecting the commentary to be anodyne. And if there's exciting film, the commentary still may be worthwhile or may not be. You can still be hit and miss with it. Anyway, so I I but i watched that stuff again and I'm actually quite happy with it. I don't I don't well, we still need mind to it.
1: like launch the um the forty-five minute NASCAR um early history of NASCAR video that we did as well. Because we put quite a lot of effort into that. I just kicking around on my hard drive, we need to get that out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well I, I had considered, of course, I, I was thinking this is a misnomer is somebody listening to this thinking, I was expecting moching history. Where <laughs> is the history of the Suzuki JSXR? I want to know what happened in the 1969 Spanish Grand Prix from Barcelona in gory detail. I don't know. I mean, maybe there is, there is an audience for that out there, isn't it? But I, I didn't want to do it. I feel like that's better done in the written form. That's what John Summers.net's for, whereas this form is for you know us chickens just uh, well if they look it up it.
1: i think we get to that in episode 263 so
0: they just need to hang yeah. around for a bit well fun. or go to or did you go to dot net and, I mean, and could do you, that ancient ancient video but you see I that, that video patient. the reason that took you ages to do was because you were trying to layer in the right image and when i was saying junior johnson you needed to be shown junior johnson not david pearson and and getting all that stuff right and it's a total pain in the ass and this yeah this but it's like 99 percent
1: of... done now so we should definitely get it out
0: but you know what it's a lot less of a pain in the ass than those monks in the medieval period writing latin with quills and ink and or and doing do it in their eyes because they were trying to work with candles late at night so if you're gonna at least it's at least we can preserve what we have in a in a sensible kind of of, of a way yeah so let me begin um, this, uh, this conference by um you Google up Watkins Glen original track, right, if you Google up an original track map of Watkins Glen. Um, and if you're listening in the car or something, you know, I know you can't Google it up. And we always talk about these visual images. The point is, that Watkins Glen was set up to feel like a European circuit. So the main start finish is the main high street through the town. And then you turn off the high street and rather like the Targa Florio, you climb up this crazy hill, a long straight, loads of sweeping around, far more like the Nürburgring or Spa than like the Targa Florio. Um, You can drive the roads now. um, And that final corner, Big Bend, which is this long downhill right hander, my word! If that's not one of the best corners in motorsport, and I include, you know, I include corners at Spa in in that that big bend, crappy name, great corner, um, yeah, it's a very so, American
1: name to be fair. Well,
0: well, it it, it is it accurate is. Um, too. So, you know. so uh, the other thing is is if you look, um, if you look at you look at the start finish and they turn right and they go up the hill. Um, that long right hander there the motel that i stay in is there and it's one of these motels where they don't take you have to like call up by phone they're not on hotels.com or anything like that you know and they they have like one of those old credit card machines that you know you, you put it down and you they, they like run the thing backwards and foot but the driver stayed there that's why i stay in that um in that motel because that's where where the driver stayed and there's loads of driver memorabilia in in the bar and the bar's quite an impressive bar and if i tell you that when i rocked up to to check in on this last visit there was a gun auction going on there were like more pickup trucks than you could shake a stick at parked up outside and i was Good like okay as i like, came in they were hammering a remington for 550 bucks you know that was the the uh uh, yeah, the, the auctioneer was a girl in her mid-20s and she was an absolute rock star, right? It was worth it was worth watching. It was worth watching the gun auction because this girl was was uh, was an absolute belcher, and of course I didn't get a name and can't remember the auction company, but that was a, a pretty cool upstate New York travel experience. But yeah, if you look further around the course, as the course crosses the railway line, which in period was like, you know, a total like and this is they they used it in the early fifties. So the cars are like Alards and very early Ferraris. So old uh, Miles Collier's father was killed on that fast. Um, I, I think it's a right hander. Maybe it's a yeah. Maybe it's a lefter. Maybe it's a right hander. But there's a fast sweeper up at the top of the course there. But um, it basically part of its a roads. A lot of it is b roads. A lot of that top part of the course feels like a. a like an English B road, so like a British sports car, be really good, really good along it. But yeah, as I say, that big bend is a long, sweeping downhill. Um, yeah, so it's the kind of course that you can see a Nuvolari do it well, where you were, uh, you know. So if you had big balls, it's a good course. Um, so they built, of course, the road course, which the NASCAR guys and in IndyCar and Formula One use for a bit. They built that to try and replicate it, but that's about ten miles out of town. Um, and in the town, there's affiliated to the library, there's uh, an organization called the International Motor Racing Research Center. And it's an archive of car stuff. So every car book that I've got on my shelf, they have as well. It's like, and plus like a ton more. They, you know, when the, their version, the American version of Murray Walker, Chris Economaki, Um, When when he popped on to where Pastors New a few years ago, his wife donated his archive to the IMRRC. Um, Yeah, so a library where if you call them, they'll do work. It's a bit like the National Motor Museum. They'll do work and research for you. Um, Cool. But uh, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, a little bit of a backwater... And because they're not commercially viable, you know they rely on donations. That makes me always feel awkward about what a potential future might might look like. I mean, I'm, I've, I'm not a businessman, and I didn't enjoy the world of business. But I just, I'm just uncomfortable with anything that doesn't have a sort of sustaining income that's relying on a, on a sort of handout and doesn't, um, you know. Yeah. So I I, I, um, I felt, also I guess I feel also that there are a few centres like this that have a lot of knowledge and they should be like nodes on a greater network. So when you are researching information about Indianapolis, it should dig into the Revs archive, it should dig into, you know, George Simeone's archive in Philadelphia, it should dig into um, the National Motor Museum. It should be in all these places at once rather than these information being sort of siloed away so you know you you need to like it's like old-fashioned history you need to go to these places and like look through the books and talk to the historians to which is fun for like a beardy old historian like me but I just I, I just don't feel it's like the future of of you know if we're to preserve motorsport if you know people in 120 years time to understand what was so cool about the Porsche 956, then we need to do better than grey haired blokes and books on shelves. Is, is my, uh, um, as, as you said, Great. I was, I was, I told you I was editing number three. You said in number three, um, you know, like I, I don't want to walk around a museum where their cars are sitting there and they haven't even bothered to put up a TV screen where you can see the car driving the one year, every millennium, they fire it up and, and you're going to hear the, and hear it. That was the main point you were making the sound. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and this is not dissimilar from, um, old Michael Shanks, uh, uh Sanford there and this, this notion that, that he had after going around this art gallery in the Hague where uh, they had these still lives. I probably told you this before, they had these still lives. So the still life would be like a bottle of wine and a brass bowl with some fruit in it, and then they would have the brass bowl on a plinth at the side. So you've sort of got the art, and then you've got like a three D representation of it, which is it, which is saying which suddenly right the both things are more. There's a symbiosis there. The art is you know so yeah so you can. If you've got film of the car running, in theory, you can preserve the car in perpetuity and not wear it out by running it, driving it all the time. You, but you can still have the pleasure of making it come alive. And as virtual reality gets better and better, I feel we're duty-bound to do that. I mean, already, a driving game of racing a blower Bentley at Le Mans is more realistic than you and me buying a Bentley and going there and driving down the Mozart driving down the, the main road from Paris to but tour that, at I... 130 miles an hour. I mean, it's, it's so, so there's, there's room for both. Right. But uh, is is having the real Bentley and being able to drive it around and then having like a VR representation of it, which is grounded in, it's not Mario car. It's grounded in, the reality that Benjafield gave us when he wrote his impressions of what it was like to race down the Mozart Straight—you know—we can. The computer can make the road narrow again. The computer can make the road rough again,
1: can't it? You know, which oh, which dude, like know? I mean, you know, that, that somewhat exists. See, if you like, <clears throat> if you set up a VR connection to something like GP Legends or something, you, you know, you can do pretty good sim racing stuff based on you know the 1957, you know. GP season. So you do all the old ultra, so there's a lot of stuff coming along. And with the, um, you know, my boss, I was just at a conference the last couple of days and my boss is lad. Um, I say lad, I think he's like 23 or something, but you know, he races, sim racing, he plays iRacing and he, and, uh, uh, my boss had uh, endless issues with a three letter acronym company, <laughs> um, delivery firm with a Brown shield. Um, having issues delivering it, finding the hotel in central London that's very near to Heathrow. Um, But anyway, we got this, we got the box delivered. And it was some 350 or 400 bucks set of pedals by Fanatec um, that are the pedals. And there's full sort of varying resistance in the pedals and you can get full geared ratios of resistance stuff on the steering wheels. Now that actually feels like you can sell, you can have a really sexy setup at home that used to be, um, sort of the preserve of the McLaren center, you know, when they started doing VR, you can very much get more advanced probably than they had, maybe not in terms of full you know, axis and the G on, on the chairs and so forth. But you know, you can approach that in a way that you never used to be able to these days. But the secondary point I'll make is back to your point about the museums. It's so myopic. These places are often short of cash. They're often having trouble making ends meet and sustaining what should be, as you say, an archive in the physical. Um, but Look at how successful Goodwood is. Look at how successful a lot of these retro classics are. Why don't these places rent out a track for a day? Tracks need, like often, especially in the winter, need money as well because they're not being utilized in the same way. Why don't these people race, rent these places out, take the cars there and once and sell tickets? People would come. Yeah, You're going to sell a shitload of tickets over a long weekend, make a load of money. It's probably going to see the museum through for the rest of the year. And they get turned over once a year. It's only a few you know, they're probably going to do, 30 or 50 miles. But the more you do, the more you put into it, the more they actually give it a few beans and like, you know, get the back end out, the more people will come. So it's, I think there's, there's more that can be done in that area as well.
0: This is exactly what my presentation at the conference was about. It was about how (laughs) the the hobby is is changing, right? It was it was kind of about YouTube. But I touched on the fact that there is this contradiction between museums closing and contradict and collections being liquidized and pebble being bigger than ever um you know car show cars and coffee events being out of control the value of collectible cars of all a you know of all shapes and sizes but particularly you know 90s stuff there is you you know they they, yeah so um yeah but what my um you know so with there is definitely scope to have people um you know i don't know i don't know nobody ever goes to the museum in your hometown. do you, you never visit the museums in you know when did you last go to the british museum when did you last go to the natural history museum like you, decades and decades ago you, you don't go to the things that, that are, are close to you and and um so maybe the notion that Goodwood is this like one-off thing that you have to go to, where you have to buy the tickets and all of that, you know, it becomes like a Prada handbag, That the fact that it's $30,000, not $3,000 or $300, that alone makes it, you know, comfortable, it's rareness makes it, you know, that the, and there is a, isn't there an economic phenomenon where as the price goes up, it becomes more desirable, not less desirable because it has this, because that confers exclusivity, or it, it conveys the you know greater status for the owner, right? Because you know everyone knows how much money you spend on it, kind of thing. Yeah. Um. You know. Yeah. So what we say, and there's definitely room for a shake-up in the way that we think about marketing classic cars, um, or marketing automobility altogether. Um, the conference, one of the things that came up repeatedly was this notion that um, we we need to take a model from the horsey people. And, and that once upon a time, horses were, you know, 100 years ago, horses were, you know, being used f- as trucks, um, you know, basically. And, and now they're exclusively as sports cars. You know, it's dressage. It's, it's And what's a dressage if not a demonstration of an everyday skill? if you had to ride a horse every day, you basically, if you were going to ride the horse properly and not have the horse be a pain in the all, you needed to be about as good, not as good as like top dressage. Now, but you, you, you know what I mean? Just as driving on a track, driving a Morris minor round a track in a hundred years time is going to be similar to, you know, racing, you, you see what I mean? The, it, it, there's this notion of pulling together the, the, the skills. I don't really know where exactly where I'm I'm going with that. But, but yeah. I, I hear what you're um, saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, especially as it becomes rarer. Um, my, yeah, again, I, I was chatting to a chap at the conference and he said that uh, his, he lives in the States and his neighbor's car had been broken into and they'd broken into it, got in and sat in and then just got out and walked off because it was stick ship.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it is a fairly uh, uh, well-known thing that the best way to stop your car getting stolen in California was drive something with manual transmission. Um, Yeah, and of course, this is why so many hypercars went to automatics because, you know, the reality is managing a V12 stick shift in everyday traffic is, you know, it's a thing. You need to be good you need to be committed. And there is always that chance that, you know, I I, I don't know, I mean, there are hills. Um, I remember, you know, if I use the Mustang for the school run, I will drive a particular route to avoid having to do a stoppy starty through a four way intersection uphill where there's a hundred yards of cars because the the, the, the clutch pedal needs to be on the floor all the time. And, and, you know, I don't know if there's something wrong with the clutch or the clutch is just heavy on that, on that Mustang, but you know, my, my leg for one hour, I'm like an old man. I'll get back pain if I do, you know, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what it, so I presented a lot on YouTube, right. It was about what I talked about was how, it was motor well, racing so this was...
1: is which, so which conference so this is the conference at the place of the walking glen and who else is there it, it's uh, so it, it's at this imrrc
0: like yeah. international motor racing research center and the small conference you know there's maybe 50 people in attendance if that um but this bridge that i've always tried to stand on between the academics and the car racing people, because remember, the car racing people often have a lot of money, they're often really enthusiastic about cars but they're, they're what the academics call folk historians, that they they're not trained historians, they, they like telling anecdotes, um, you know, bench racing in, in, in our parlance, but they're not historians, in in the sense of you know when you talk to academic historians about cars what they say is that cars don't have any agency in other words we can talk about henry ford we can talk about alfred sloan talk about ferruccio lamborghini but we can't talk about lamborghini as as a like a lamborghini car this is just not in the same realm as, as, and and a lot of this, right, is the composition of people who are historians, which is you know it's it's a liberal leaning, female leaning profession, and that's very obvious when you go to the to to the conferences. So, um, you know, I this event's different from that, right? The academics who come are car enthusiasts, and the non-academics who come. Are folk historians who are really clever people who work like historians. So for example, Don Caps, who you will see, you know, knocking around who's uh leading light at, at the conference, um, former army ranger, um, multiple, you know, <laughs> helicopter shot out of the sky in Nam numerous times. Um has focused his energies in more recent years on being not just a historian but on encouraging people like me to write and talk about motor racing history did a big thing about the origin of the silver arrows um he sponsored a paper this time from this guy in new zealand who thinks he can unpick a number of very mysterious histories of Italian 50s racing cars. And this this is a rat hole that's that's worth disappearing down, right? Because this is what the the the, the conference is, is is really about. Um uh, it seems that Italians registered all of their cars and identified their cars like motorcycles by the engine whereas in Europe we always did it by the body this would seem to be a trivial detail wouldn't it right so in other words when Luigi and Mario were building the car they put engine one in chassis one now somebody then goes out and bends up chassis one which never happened would it no you take engine one out and you put it in chassis two and that car becomes car number one, that's now chassis. That's now car one, VIN number one, when that car gets shipped abroad, when it gets put into racing manifests, it's car number one. In like, yet in actuality, right? It's car number two, according to how we Europeans feel about it. So fast forward 50 years, when maserati 250 fs are collectible well it really matters whether this was the car that sterling moss raced and won that fangio was photographed in in that famous picture with the damaged nose and the car in a full-blooded four-wheel drift right if you can identify that car or even just that engine that engine in gearbox it, you know it, the identifying that specific car is a much more important thing well and and the trail is completely completely blurred well um i saw the paper presented before a couple of years ago before the pandemic and there was a car broker classic car broker racing car broker well-known guy in the audience and i happened to be stood by him um stood with him for lunch you know in line for lunch immediately after the presentation so i said to him why did you Make of that Maserati thing, and he said he thought it was a load of old bollocks. And of course, because he has sold many of those cars, and he sold the car saying this chassis was the chassis that Sterling Moss used to win in Monaco in 1954, which he didn't, but you know what I mean. I, that, you know, this, this was the car that did the deed, yet. Now the paperwork seems completely blurred and crossed out, right? Because the way that it was annotated from the factory and the way that it was. So so if you think of it, so car number two leaves the factory as car number two. But when it comes back to the factory and gets engine number five, then it becomes car number five according to our reckoning it's not car number five it's actually still car number two right it's got the dinks and the louvers and the brakes and everything of car. so you see how it, it should be a fairly simple thing but actually it, it becomes hideously complicated so that's the stuff that don caps is is ready to to do is pick at those wounds and he'll say you know i can't get doug nye i can't get my friend doug nye to say this and i'm like i said to him in the conference Don. Like that's because Doug is retained by the auction companies and the auction companies have a business which is predicated on the widget being a widget, not a widget that had a widget changed into it. And, and so, this, so this bloke that you've wheeled in, this Trevor Lister guy from New Zealand who looks like he played far too much rugby, and has put together these crazy spreadsheets where he thinks it's not just Maserati 250Fs. He thinks it's Seatas, it's Oscars, of course it's Ferraris. But there's an additional like level of double layer of complexity with Ferrari. One being that they they cheated with the numbers. Basically, it looks like they deliberately bent the rules. Who would imagine Ferrari? deliberately bend the rules. Plus you've got the obfuscation of the fact that the cars have been worth a lot of money for ages. So you have the whole like Lord Brockett thing. Do you remember Lord Brockett? This was in the eighties, English Lord. Um, when Ferrari prices went up, he started doing things like cutting up some cars to make better ones and faking up the identity of the better one. And there was core cool. But by that time, like half a dozen cars, like nice-ish cars, cars that'd be worth millions now, had been cut up to make fakey do GTOs. Basically, that was the, was it was it was oh, it's, it's absolutely fingernails down the down the blackboard when you think about it. But 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 so when you when you look back at that, right? That's how the cars were treated in period. So the Ferraris, particularly, uh, and they're, they're of course worth telephone dial amounts of money now. So so to so for somebody like the car broker who I'll, I won't name um but really well known you've seen him advertised handles the very very best cars one of the top two or three car brokers um you know if we were to go back with the four his car brokers he would be one of the first three or four names that, that, that we would uh we would come up with um yeah he's to to dig into that would just be destroy um you know, any sense of value or provenance. And and it's a bit like digging into allegations of cheating in NASCAR. It's like, who gains from it? So when Smokey Unix said that Fireball Roberts won the 1962, you know, Daytona 500 with a supercharger, when he wrote that, yet, you know, nobody found any evidence of it. The car's long since destroyed. All, All he did was kind of pee on Fireball's achievement somewhat, didn't he? He didn't really, like, we can't prove it. And I'm not saying he shouldn't have written it if he thought it was true. I'm just saying in terms of, of the clarity it, of history. He never
1: leaves them. It never leaves them. Nige was the same, Goodwood, in his little speech. They're still snarky and annoyed and grudge-holding, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I just wonder. What gives uh, them but, the vim
1: and vigor, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, well, we'll Smoky Unit was certainly a vim and vigor kind of person. And, of course, there's if you looked on, i've dug into it, it there's stories about well, where could the supercharger have been and how could nascar have missed it and could smokey have had it on there and removed it and and i i just think it was an old man you know talking some shit at the end of his life smokey was like that and i don't think there was ever a supercharger on the car and i feel like there's like an asterisk next to fireball's achievement where he was super dominant like dominant in a way that you never see in nascar now And I feel it was partly Smokey's car. And I feel that Smokey's car probably was a bit cheaty. But I feel like Fireball was really fucking amazing that weekend. It was his day of days, if you like. And Smokey, you know, denigrated that for, for, you know, just... But, but, you know, that's just because I can't imagine how a supercharger would fit. But the point is digging into allegations of NASCAR cheating just makes everybody look bad. You know, when David Pearson won all those super speedway victories with the Wood Brothers, you know, was that cheaty? You know, if I, I listened to a Pearson interview recently, um, where he was saying, oh, you know, because old Petty, he'd often have the big motor. And I'm thinking, yeah, but what did the Wood Brothers do to your car? You know, no I, I you know, nobody was within the rules. So, you know, but but to dig into that Takes away from the the greatness of uh, of the individual of the individual driver. The point I was making in my presentation was looking at YouTube and saying YouTube has changed the way that we talk about cars. Um, if you want to see, if you want to know who, wh- how good Fangio was, you have to read. It, you know, have to, you have to like read history and do standard history, you have to like read books and compare and contrast and secondary sources. And what did contemporaries think? And you know, yeah, it's it's this pure hardcore history. Whereas if you want to know how good Senna was, you just watch the races, they're all on YouTube, you can see you can see for yourself whether or not he's better. Well, that's awesome as a as a history thing. And now you've got people on YouTube doing that, that Aiden Millwood guy I was talking about earlier, you've got NASCAR guys, Doing that, you've got people taking things like um, Alan Grice. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. He was a total maverick racing in in Australia. He was like a Bathurst guy. Well, in the mid-80s, Holden, the Holden factory team, were like, we're going to race in Europe. Gricey, the privateer, he was like, I'm coming too. I'm going to take my Holden as well. So you've got Peter Brock with the dealer, with the Holden dealer team, like racing against 635s and Capris and things like that. And then you've got this white Holden, Gricey's Holden, not sponsored by anybody. Chickadee was the name. That's some haulage Company from the town that he was on. Chickadee was 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 the sponsor. Gricey was faster than the DTV, the dealer team. And even won some races in the course of the season, right? Amazing story. This super one hundred mile an hour guy tells that story, right? Which I never would have got. I'm not going to sit there and watch every, you know, every round of the European Touring Car Championship from 1986. But when Super One Hundred Miles an Hour packages it up for me, there's a new narrative and a new way of telling the story. So I talked about that. I talked about old Hoovy and the supercar guys and how. Remember, I told that story about the. You know, three dozen McLarens that nearly ran me over when uh, when I was at Pebble, and I couldn't believe how many Lamborghinis and McLarens and new supercars that there were at Pebble. Yeah, I, I, that's Hoovy is part of this, and these other YouTube guys who Hoovy has three Lamborghinis paid for by the channel, paid for by this stupid persona that he's got, where he talks about cars and doesn't really do anything with them, He just fixes them. And then sells them. He doesn't really like He does not It's not like he goes to the track. It's not like he's like setting quarter mile times. It's not like he's you know what I mean? He doesn't. Um, yeah. So uh, yet what he yet the little he does is enough for him to generate an income from that. So I thought that was worth that was worth talking about. But to be honest, I've had enough of the whole, like, motor racing as a mediated experience. I want to go back and do proper, like, hardcore history. So I think what I'm going to do next, um, there was, uh, I'm a member of the Society of Automotive Historians, and uh, a woman locally contacted the society saying, like, my dad was into motor racing. He's got all these magazines from the 1950s. Would you be interested in them? So, the society contacted me as the local member. I met her, and there are all these oval track racing stuff from the 40s and the 50s. It seems that within my, within like 10 miles of my home, there were half a dozen racetracks. And in that brief window after the war, but before everyone had a TV, watching oval racing was an enormous thing in, in the US. So, I'm going to do a bit of research into that, and I'm going to try and do it. Um, this is, I'm, um, making this up as I go I've never said this out loud before I I just was going around inside my head when I was a tour guide in Rome I used to be able to stand in the forum and tell the whole story of Rome from one spot in the forum literally from you know over there in 750 BC right the way round to and there in 430 AD you know you could just turn around and 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 it was it wasn't a, it was a great device as a tour guide because it was so clever. Fundamentally, as I'll blow my, toot my own horn with that. But it was actually a shitty tool because the people have to stand still and then your feet hurt and you get bored and you get fidgety and you stop listening. You need to walk and talk. You need to talk for like two minutes and then walk. It doesn't matter how significant what you're looking at is. You have to walk and talk, walk and talk to keep the uh, the, the, the punters uh, the punters happy. But I wanted to do the same thing with, um, I feel like I could, do. I want, um, what was I talking about? I was talking about the same as, you know, standing in the middle of Rome. What was I going to do that with? I was going to do that with, what was I talking
1: uh, about? You were talking about the circuit racing stuff that you were going to do the research and do.
0: Yeah. I could do the same thing standing in. So you could So you could say it from my home in 1930 in my, from my home, from where I'm sitting at the moment. In 1900, what could I go and see? In 1910, what could I go and see? In 1920, in 1930, because it would change. Because something else I was going to talk about, and my my favorite presenter, um, is is this guy um, at the conference, is this guy, Joe Leonard, who, again, has a really interesting background, successful businessman, um, obsessive car guy throughout his life, classicist, and then, I had a long conversation with him about Thucydides on a bus ride one time um he studied this so um Duesenberg class judge at Pebble Beach for Duesenberg um did a really interesting piece about Duesenberg racing cars a few years ago did a really interesting piece this time about people who'd finished second at Indianapolis a lot of times so kind of like Lloyd Ruby but even the kind of beardy historians who Represented at the IMRRC, they were, you know, these are drivers who we've not heard of, and a lot of these guys raced on board tracks, which is with all the splinters, sprint cars on board tracks. Yeah, yes, (laughs) your face says it all. It was, yeah, man, Jesus, it was dangerous as a motherfucker. Imagine when the track starts to break up, and then you fall out of your car and accidentally impale yourself on a piece of two by four that's come up off the track. I mean, it just, it is yeah, eye-poppingly, not me. eye-poppingly dangerous. And there's no fucking history of it whatsoever. And there are books and I need to dig into like, cause the books are expensive cause they're rare. So I, I need to dig into that. So I think I might go back and do that kind of hardcore history rather than doing this kind of let's talk about how the story got told kind, kind of thing. So, um, other people, so, so there's a, there's, so there's the older guys like like Don and, and, and Joe. And then there's younger guys who um, are racing enthusiasts, but who are academics. So there's one girl, Kate Sullivan, who's at the University of Edinburgh, who does lots of land racing stuff. Like she's the fastest woman in the world in a pickup truck or something like that because she's been out to Bonneville numerous times. Um, uh, there's a this Belgian guy, Tim Robiers, who did a really interesting project a few years ago about Formula E, and made a lot of us old car guys sitting in the room really look at Formula E in a different way. And and you know what? It was it. it I realised that Formula E is on its way to being when you, me, me you, and Dens used to sit around in, in Wilds Lane and I used to watch you be all comers on on Wipeout on the PlayStation. And we used to say, Formula One needs to be this. It needs to be this floating. It needs to be really fast. It needs to be neon lights. It needs to be upside down. It needs to be, you can shoot the other guy. It needs to be, you can drive over power-ups. Why isn't it that? Um, f- the managing ethos around Formula E at the time that Tim did this presentation, um, seemed to be like that. And, and that was, was interesting and, and and cool to me. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. So, so the conference brings together, you know, one guy, Francis Clax, African-American dude who used to race motorcycles. Um, really interesting guy. He was, didn't make it this time. I'm not even fingers crossed. He's still, he's still with us because he was a bit frail the last time I, I spoke to him, but, um, yeah, um, one guy, um, an academic at the University of Michigan, Mark Howell, um, who worked for Todd Bodine's NASCAR team. Um, so, you know, he did a piece about his presentation was about rock stars, and uh, was, was about music, and racing cars, and how there's a lot of crossover to it. And he talked about Vince Neal. Racing in the Indie Lights series. And how, how how apparently he was quite good. I mean, who knew? Right. So uh yeah, so it's like and and had these fabulous pictures of like Vince with the Indy cars, but with the long hair and the pout still. <laughs> it was like, it was truly where heavy metal meets uh yeah, yeah. But but of course he was a bit light on he was like, you know, I'm trying to make a list of all the references between racing and car uh, between racing and you know you know every song has a reference to racing or cars in it and i'm like and and uh, i sat there thinking I'm, i was able to make a list of half a dozen heavy metal songs straight away you know if especially if you expand it to because to me right i think the main similarity between racing and rock and roll is that most of the time Everyone thinks being a rock star is about being on stage, like good evening, Long Beach, you know? And everyone thinks motor racing is about being at the track. You know, gentlemen, start your engines and you're racing And No, it's not. Mostly it's about in the truck, on the road. Both things are mostly about in the truck, on the road. It's mostly, you know, we are the road crew it's hotel rooms and motorways you know that's that's really um that's really what it is i i think yeah. so uh, so i think that a lot of that has in com- they have a lot of that in in common yeah yeah so um so let me uh, uh there is a talk track there's not an agenda today but there is a little talk track that i'm uh, yeah. So, uh, so there is this sense, right? That there's two camps at the IMRRC. We tried bridge that camp a little bit and, and there's uh, um but, but I guess the main thing this time was that they streamed it. So if you go to the IMRRC website, um, there should be a recording of it. Uh, the conference was free. Um, they'll keep the recording up. You know, this is all about publicizing motorsport and, and, you know, as Don's been very ill this, this, this last year, um, you know there is a a, a sense amongst um, us as younger guys that um this is the only event where you can talk about um this is the only event where an analysis of why Jackie Stewart won the 1968 German Grand Prix, and just how effective is so it's a well known story that he cut his own tire chunks out, right? What this conference is all about is digging into that. Well, what shapes did he cut? Well, did it make that bigger difference? Well, he had this legendary victory. Well, let's read the motorsport review. Let's look at the lap charts. Let's find as much contemporary film as we can to see how, you know, let's see if we can talk to him about what he remembers. About. It, it, it's, it's taking the surface story, which is enough for the folk historians, and it's digging into that in a way which is like a actual hardcore historian, but where the actual hardcore historians in academics, in, in academic institutions, are mostly just eye rolling because they don't give a shit about car racing. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's what, uh, so that was, uh, that
1: was, so, or at least a large chunk of it.
0: Well, exactly. Right. So that's why publicizing this and, and trying to bring some of the sheen and support of Goodwood to, to this environment. And, you know, you've got a bit, guys like Joe Leonard, they see that. He goes to Pebble beach every year. He shows cars. Across the East Coast, you know, this is some. You know, it's not like he doesn't see the juxtaposition between, um, yeah, between the the between the two events, between the kinds of of, of events. It's just, uh, um, yeah, I, I, uh, um, yeah. So it's that's what the event's all about. So it's in the New York uh, Watkins Glen's in the Finger Lakes region of New York, which candidly is a total asshole. To get to because if you fly there you have to do a puddle jumper afterwards and then to get out you have to do the puddle jumper usually at an inconvenient time of day so you're always worried you're going to miss the connecting flight back to california um so the other option is is you know you you maybe you just do one flight and you drive from there but you then you're talking like a six hour drive for six hour drive from like jfk or Philadelphia or somewhere like that, you still got a pretty long drive to to get there. Um, And then you have to have the car throughout the conference when the time you're at the conference, you don't really need a car. So um, that and similar, you know, so anyway, so I did the only sensible thing you could possibly do. Plus, I hate fucking flying. Let's be candid about it. Hate airports, um, hate security. I'm fine when I'm on the plane. But all of that bullshit between the time that you walk away from the rental car and are sat down on the plane and the plane's actually taking off, all of that can just go straight to hell and never come back. To such yeah. an extent that, plus turbulence, plus throwing in the fact that I fucking hate turbulence as well, scares yeah, the producer out of me. Ah, uh, you know, every time you come over the Sierra Nevadas, it would seem, mm, um, and and I had bad weather into Philadelphia, which is why I was like, you know, I was. Anyway, um, I drove back 3,000 miles across the country. Um, I approve. uh, Yeah. So you have done a bunch of driving holidays here. And as I was driving, I was thinking, like you've done way more driving. We should preface this, shouldn't we? And this is, I've even got this here. We should preface this by saying that, that at a young impressionable age, you and I drove A Lincoln Town Car, a 79 Lincoln Town Car, which American car guys will tell you is the last, last year of the really big cars. 400 cubic inch uh, Windsor V8, no horsepower, plenty of torque, the seafoam, half length velour roof that looked like it had been attacked by wild animals with all the foam coming out of it, big
1: eagles or something. Yeah.
0: Sea foam, velour interior. Do you remember Eight that? way directional seat control, baby.
1: That oh. fucking worked oh, and it, it was worked, awful. didn't it? So, you know, what... you could sleep in on the bench seat front and back with your, neither your head or feet touching the doors.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was legit. So we would just drive and then pull off the highway, park up somewhere, and, you know wake up in the morning and sometimes it'd
1: be an office car park sometimes it'd be a hotel yeah sometimes it'd be, yeah. it'd be the guitar, famous guitar shaped pool of nashville hotels yeah we just have a little swimming yeah yeah
0: me and my boxers because i couldn't find any box any shorts what can i yeah only realizing as i came out that that was going to delineate my scrotal area quite Cri- anyway yeah <laughs> yeah did we go? We never went to Grand Ole Opry, did we? We went to Nashville, no. but we didn't go to Grand Ole. We went Ole to a Opry.
1: bar in Nashville where they were playing in the evening, and it was pretty cool. We had a few beers and like tipped the geezer that was playing, sitting on a stool inside the door with the, with the uh, the cowboy hat and the uh, and the guitar, the guitar. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a that was a good evening. Do
0: you, do you remember one of the bars we were in? There were loads of photographs of country singers, and you were like, "I see, it's important to be hot if you're a female country singer." And I was like, yeah, that had never occurred to me before. In my naivety, I thought it was all about the quality of the singing voice. (laughs) I think it is that
1: as well. It's just that there's a large enough pool of people that want to be country stars. And as you are absolutely exceptional, yeah, they're going to pick the hot one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't drive through Nashville this time. Although I did drive through Indianapolis, which we drove through before, but I I didn't stop. So I did... um, from Watkins Glen in upstate New York to beyond St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri in on day one. Then I did basically, well, from like, from nearly, near, you know, a hundred miles west of St. Louis on route 66, like the route of route 66 then, cause you, route 66 comes from Chicago to Indianapolis. Um, there's really interesting things about Route 66, right? It's it's called the Main Street of America because it connected the towns together like an old fashioned English A road. And just like now, if you drive the A roads when there's a motorway parallel, like you drive the A4 when mm-hmm. the motorway, you know, Marlborough is still much as it was a hundred or 200 years ago. Um, yep. So when you drive through these commun- well, well, so Route 66 is that too. And if you were were thinking you might find some decay, like it's there straight away. It's there all like along the side of the old road. There is a scene of where once there was, you know, roadside businesses.
1: Yeah, you and take the trade away, it dies.
0: I picked up a can of Coke. I stopped in this town, San John, New Mexico as John, obviously, right? And uh, it, it's one of these where you remember that scene in The Big Lebowski where um, uh, the, the PIs after Lebowski's crashed the car and uh, the, the, the P.I. Um, the, that, the P.I. is following is, uh, is, is, I'll get the words out of my mouth in a minute. The P.I. is following him in the blue Volkswagen and says to him, you know, yeah. fella Seamus you know, looking for Bunny Um, You know, the family have sent this picture of her farm in Kansas. They think they, if they think it might make her homesick. And it's a picture of this fucking barren fucking dust bowl with this shitty little shack on it. And you're thinking like, yeah, there is no way in hell she is ever, ever going back to to, to that. Um, It's that kind of, it was that kind of, so there's nowhere for me to take a piss. But there's this building, I'm like, whatever. In California, there'd be like homeless squatters living in the building. But so you wouldn't want to like go in there for fear. You were like peeing in their bed. But like, I was like, there's probably way. So anyway, I went in there, took a pee. And next to where I'm taking a pee, there's like a stove. And I'm like, oh, wow. There's still like the stove that was in here when somebody lived in this place. And then I noticed next to it, there's two old Coke cans. And when I say old Coke cans, I mean that they are from the era where when you re- when you did the ring pull, you removed the ring pull. Now correct me if I'm wrong. But they changed those when we were at Davenport High School for boys in the late 1980s. Because I remember David Bickle being upset that you couldn't separate the things and you remember he would always Bickle ever afterwards would always fiddle with the lid until it broke off out of petulance. That they weren't going to leave the lid attached. That he wanted a separate ring pull. Do you remember that? So that
1: must have been what. Well, you yeah, remember you should put the ring pull bit into the. It, so the, the you put the uh, the the sort of uh tab that came out. If you had the the ring pull with the two little slits in it, you could stick it in and then bend it back and use it as a spring and fire the ring pull across the classroom.
0: Yeah, yeah, I do remember Bickle I doing mean, that's, that.
1: That's you know they're destroying a hobby. Yeah. They're destroying a way well, of life. Well, so that was <laughs> a way of life. Has been
0: well, fucking, this is what I saw on Route 66, right? A way of life destroyed. A can of soda, a Coke can that had been drunk, discarded, and left there for what, 30 years, 35 years? You know, like, so that was was interesting. So, a lot of, you know, so finding the cool abandoned garages with cars cool cars. That was not to the extent that I conditioned myself to I was like, I'm not going to stop. If I stop at any of these, I'm just not gonna because I, I set myself to do it in four days. So it meant that I had to do at least 750 miles a day. And then when I started out. I was like, I, I didn't want to get caught speeding. Um, so I just set the speed up. Well, well, then I realized I could drive further without getting tired. You know, like a lot further because the speeds were lower, because everything was just mm. moving more slowly. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so St. Louis, the first day, the second day, um, Amarillo, Texas, just by Cadillac Ranch, you know, where the, so I stopped basically, because um, I was going, because this is the thing, right? You're, my gut is that when the sun goes down, you're like, right, fucking cannonball now, because and whereas, and you know, in in the old days when I used to go up and down to LA a lot, that'd be the time to get the radar detector on. And that was the time where you could really make some speed because the radar detector would would work. You know, fast up the hill and then roll off over the top of the hill, and then on the way, if if the radar doesn't detect right over the top of the hill, you can just come back in the throttle and do, be doing whatever speed you 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 want to be, you know, you want to be, you want to be doing there. Um, but. Uh, um, I didn't bring a radar detector. I didn't want to drive like that this time. And I, I realized on the first day, when i had done the whole of the Midwest, like all the way across, like New York, Philadelphia, Ohio, you know, and then right the way into Missouri, which is right the way across the Midwest, right? Missouri was the Western bit of America, you know, the edge of the Wild West, wasn't it? And I did that in a single, in a single day. So with that thought, I was like, I want to see how the country, how the country evolves in terms of landscapes. I don't want to. Plus, when you've been driving since eight o'clock, since seven, eight o'clock in the morning, by the time it gets dark, you're fucking mm. knackered anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Amarillo. Te- so I did Cadillac Ranch and the weather was like we, we grew up in Plymouth and Plymouth has a special brand of rain, doesn't it? Where it's not quite raining. It's just damp. So you can put an umbrella around, it's not going to help you at all. You're still going to be wet and cold. And the cold gets into your bones far more than the temperature would suggest. Like you, Americans would say, what, what's the temperature? And You would say, oh, mid-50s. And they'd say, well, it's fine. And then you leave them out in it for a little bit. Like we had, we get a bit of this wet weather like that here. Dana watched a soccer match with Ollie's. Cold got into her bones so uncomfortable and miserable. Like with, well, it was like that when I was at Cadillac Ranch. It was like that kind of cotton wool. Fog, and just a word on Cadillac Ranch, as you're driving west, it's south of the highway. It's actually quite a long way away. It's not like Stonehenge. Stonehenge is way closer, way closer to the road. than. Or actually, that road's closed. Did you know that? Have you been past Stonehenge recently? They've what closed. That like? closed, they've moved the road. It's moved. Um, really? Damn. Yeah.
1: Excellent.
0: About time. Yeah. Or um, well, they moved. The road they moved is the one that goes right past it. Right. The one that the, that that road. So not the oh, three hundred three. The little one is the one that they've, uh, that oh, they've okay. closed and they've made the whole thing. part. Of, so down at the if, if you go past, if, if you remember, you used to be driving. If you were driving west, you used to come off the 303 and on that little ro- on that little road and then the car park would just be up on the right. They've now moved all of that stuff further away. And you go to a visitor center and then you ride a bus down. I um, actually think it's a better experience. But I wasn't. Yeah, I do your character well, you know a major a road Yeah, but they're right going to move point. that. That's that's the the they're going to that's that's going to be moved. I think so. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, so Amarillo, Texas to um, uh was it Seligman? Yeah, it was Seligman, Arizona, which is the town which is closest to Radiator Springs in the Cars movie. Um, and it is. I mean it is California, and by that time right at almost every intersection there's historic route sixty six and if you get off you can actually drive on what was route sixty six uh and it'll run parallel to the main freeway um and sometimes the surface won't be quite good and the speed limit will be fifty five miles an hour, but you really get a sense of what it was really what it was really like so um I actually felt like the best bits of Route 66 were, were out west. I actually felt like the best vistas, like New Mexico, the high desert, awesome. But I actually felt like the best vistas were um, old uh, California there, coming into to Southern California. And then I came off at 58 um, and came past Bakersfield and then up I-5 and home to... Uh, Home here to to the uh, to the San Francisco to San, to the Bay Area. Um, I kind of want an eighty wheeler. Again, you know, I'll kind of. Um, they are really really cool. Um, because I didn't really talk to anybody, and I didn't listen to the radio or anything like that. I just had my YouTube playlist on mix, so a lot of like EDM and a lot of heavy metal, and absolutely nothing else. I was just totally like checked out. From there and driving slower, you run at the same speed as, as the trucks a lot of the time. Although, what you'll remember from, um, you know, years ago of, uh, of of driving in the Lincoln was on the downhills, they don't mess around. They'll do whatever the sp- speed the truck will run up to. They won't fight the brake, fight it on the brakes. If it wants to run down that hill at 80 or 85, they will, will let it do that. Um, and that's. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not been passed by an eighteen wheeler like that for uh, for, for some <laughs> considerable time. Um, you did a couple of vacations here, um, didn't you? Where did, did you like Where did
1: you four drive? Out of five years, yeah, um, yeah. So just picked up rental Mustangs from various places. Um, so the V8s, obviously, at least I, I sometimes do V8 straight away if it was an option or just upgrade at the airport. Um, but yeah, now we flew into. Uh, Seattle, or a couple of times into once into Vegas, a couple of times into San Francisco, and then picked up um, the cars, and then did various routes or routes. If we it feels right to say that, given we're talking about America, Um, and then yeah, I mean we drove from San Francisco to Las Vegas through Death Valley. Uh, I've been through um, Yosemite. I've been through um, Yellowstone. Um, We did Craters of the Moon National Park. I did northern idaho up to and uh, through montana up to the up to the uh the border um going to the sun road and so forth up in, the, in that national park up there i mean it's an absolutely fabulous places up there um regularly get the side eye from the uh gentleman as i drop the uh the rental car back and he goes you've had this for three weeks and you've done five and a half thousand miles I how have you done that <laughs> like, well there's a lot to see you know <laughs> um, but uh yeah, I mean, look, it's it's epic. And you know, if you spend a bit of time out there, you can find some really nice roads, you really can. I mean, you know, just thinking off the top of my butt, but Boise, Boise, which is a wonderful name, uh, Idaho, if you if you head northeast out of there up to Idaho City, once you get past there on the 21, oh, damn, that is a, a beautiful piece of road. It's twisty as all hell. Um, well surfaced, goes all the way up into the mountains yeah. and and
0: I should point out there that you uh, it wasn't like we prepared for this call or anything like that. You just remembered that off the cuff because you enjoyed driving that rope so much.
1: Well, oh, I've been up there twice deliberately because it was just so great. We took a little detour on the way back from um, uh, the Grand Tetons National Park, which I love the fact that it is basically the Big Tits National Park. That's, the name. That's what it, that means. Um, because there is two mountains that look like a pair of bazoomers. <laughs> Wizzywig, what you see is what you get. It's fair enough, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, there is um, that um, joke, isn't there? That
0: I always uh, forget how to tell properly, but the, the punchline is it's like Native Americans talking to each other, and uh, the punchline is anyway. Why do you ask? Two dogs fucking.
1: Okay. <laughs> That's an odd name, dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, no, there's some there's some special stuff up there. Um, and if you get up early, or if you or more to the point with a lot of those national parks, you know, don't get up early, you know, have a lie in you on holiday with the missus, you know, chill and have a big breakfast, go and do a bit of driving to get you where you get to, then have a nice late lunch and linger over it. Um, Go and chill out somewhere, look at a bit of scenery, and then head on up to say, you know, the national park about an hour before sunset. Perfect, everyone's coming the other way. So A, you've got the road up there when everyone's around pretty much to yourself, going one way so you can enjoy the road up there. Then you get up to the, to the car park that's almost empty, you get lovely sunset light on everything so all your photos look golden. Uh, and then when you leave, you're leaving sort of just after the sun goes down, time to get back to the hotel and have a nice spot of wine and some food with the uh, with your good lady. And you can thrash the rental car on the way back down the mountain as well. So yeah, lots to be said for that.
0: Mm.
1: And if there's road works, that's the other trick I would advise. Uh, if there's road works, uh, on your chosen route, then, uh, you know, get through the road works. If you're at the back of the EQ, get through the road works on the count contra flow, stop, you know, sit down, do, do something constructive, for 10, 15 minutes. And then you know that whole road ahead of you has got no one on it. So you can have, you know, stretch the vehicle's legs somewhat. Um, And if you're first through on the contraflow, because you probably will be at the next one, because everyone else would have gone through ahead of you, then you definitely know you've got the entire time of the contraflow was coming the other way and no one in front of you as well.
0: Yeah. I was. And if you uh... have to
1: wait if it's long enough, sometimes you'll catch up and I'm not saying this has happened to me or anything, but you'll catch up a North wind branded caravan at least three or four times. So when you're editing your own private GoPro footage of it, you you come hooning up to the back of said caravan on multiple occasions, and then just find a little lay by somewhere picturesque with a nice view of the river and chill out for a bit, have a little, uh, you know, um, relaxed time and then head on again, cracking entertainment. um, I guess the other
0: thought that that I had is about um, Route sixty six is um, that what they badge as historic Route sixty six is the road as it was in nineteen twenty six when it was like designated as Route sixty six, but that sort of hides the fact that it was in continual evolution, so. It wasn't like it suddenly bypassed the towns and you know people were thrown out of work. It, it, it continually evolved and, and changed and, and developed. Basically, as cities grew up, it then needed to bypass those cities because it was slow driving through the middle of them. Um, so it, 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 it was a continual shifting, changing um, kind of a thing. And I actually... You know, you and I have, have hiked that road, that prehistoric road, um, West of London, the Ridgeway. It actually reminded me more of that, that it was this sense of sort of of continual um, evolution rather than being one kind of, of um, you know, fixed thing that this was Route 66 kind of thing. It wasn't like that. It was a, it was a continually evolving, uh, evolving thing. Um, who's your favourite YouTube at the moment?
1: Quite like, uh, well, obviously I like a bit of Todd's triple Todd. Um, who was introducing himself as "Hi, it's Todd from Todd's Workshop and Todd Cutler here," yeah, as if he didn't get there it was Todd the first time. Um, I understand why he does it, but it still makes me smile every time. Doing his Roman catapulter re- revisited, and he's got himself a, a, a ballista that he, he experiments with, and he's good buddies with Dr. Toby Kaplan from the Wallace Collection in London. So he makes replicas of. You know, uh, daggers and then test them out against various types of leather and chainmail to see how brutally dead you would be if someone knifed you with them and whether or not it does any damage to the weapons. Um, and, and he usually gets the gentleman from uh, Scholar Gladiatoria, which is another quite good YouTube channel if you like your arms and armor, to help him demo them. And he's into that sort of hi- historical reenactment with sort of um, foam latex weapons stuff, which is pretty brutal to be honest, um, but uh, where they do a bit of arms and armor reenactment fighting so I've like that and then I also like I was watching a bit of a Daphid Phillips who's a Welsh photographer and videographer who spends a lot of time going to air shows like Axalp in Switzerland uh, and hanging around on the Mac Loop in North Wales and Snowdonia where all this, the sort of fighter jets from various allied nations, uh, NATO nations go to train at flying sort of sub-mountain level and sort of 500 feet and so forth and he gets he climbs up the mountain daily, as his little CB radio to listen into the to the pilot's uh chatter. So, because you don't they don't announce the flight schedule, obviously. Um, and then you know, gets amazing like 4K footage of F-35s coming past at just about subsonic speeds below him. He's standing above them on the mountain looking down. Uh, and the bits where the bits that I love every time is where they start to pull at a vertical turn. So they'll flip over like they do in Top Gun and like pull vertical. And you get that sort of, um, sort of mist and halo of vapor over the top as it sort of rips the air, the moisture out of the air as they pull the, uh, pull upwards. And some of the shots of that with the sunlight on it, and it's all sort of rainbow trails through that. It's just mwah, beautiful. So that's the, yeah, we're looking at that maybe. Mm, mm. I was aware of that alley in, in Wales
0: and had seen some of the photos. So, uh, yeah. Um, I, I uh I've been enjoying um Salvage Rebuilds UK, which is these these two guys in Kent who, who rebuild cars. Um and uh, one of them's kind of shy, the one that's skillful guy is kind of shy and doesn't like to talk very much, and and the guy that talks to the camera all the time, it's like a dose of England without being in England. So so a something that made me all about laughing the other day was was uh the rob talks about is talking about damage to the part of the car that's below the door between the wheels which i don't know how you would pronounce it but he pronounces it seal the seal damage to the seal well and and he has these really flat like kent like, like and so um it, it, so the the accent makes me laugh. The skill of of workmanship that they'll take like an Audi A3 that's been spammed at the front, and they'll have it rebuilt in a couple of days. And you can and and it's not just the sourcing and fitting of the parts. It's not just the repairing the engine. It's hardcore body repair as as well. So there's the element that I always like from those that kind of YouTube where you were. Uh, where where you learn it, but no, the the seal as as uh, makes me laugh. The accent makes me laugh, and and what really made me laugh is this one video where after he says seal, the other one goes oh, like oh <laughs> oh
1: like 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 a and when I pointed that like the out, bugger's on pier thirty nine or whatever. Yeah, it's it, yeah. yeah.
0: like like the seals on on pier thirty nine and that oh oh of the uh, and yeah, so that made me laugh because of of our um silly joke about about the seals but but yeah that the so i'm enjoying i've enjoyed salvage rebels uk um because of that uh favorite car or bike at the moment
1: i don't know um what's yours i give me another 30 seconds to think about that oh
0: um i hadn't i told you to think about this before you came on the call yeah i I did (laughs) Um, but oh, I, shit. I, of course I told you to do it and then hadn't done it myself, but that's what this should be, right? This, this favorite car at the moment should be a totally spontaneous thing. And I've said car and bike to, to combine it together. I've got to be honest with you. I, I did this open garage thing for some of my neighbors where, you know, there's a number of us on the street that are into cars and bikes in different kinds of ways. So we uh, do a, a little get together where we just drink beer and, and talk about cars, um, or bikes or whatever it takes our fancy. Um, And I hadn't hosted, and I thought, instead of just hosting, I'll get a couple of cars out of the garage, I'll move the bikes around, I'll make it so that you can actually see the bikes. And uh, yeah, and I didn't plan to like call it an open garage, but that's what it sort of turned out to be. And it felt like an open garage to me, because I was like espousing about my my stuff. One of my bikes, uh, the 90 GSXR 1100, which is black and gray and has a bunch of race bits on it, four Yoshimura race pipe, four um, Mikunis. Um, It really, uh, I'd not looked at it in, you know, I I don't know if it had been in a corner. Um, I'd not looked at it in comparison to, I have the same bike in the same colors, with a standard exhaust on it, and it's totally standard setup. And I guess I hadn't, I because I've been fiddling around with and trying to get the standard bike to work, I hadn't looked at the racier one for a long time. And the racier one is sexy as a bag of cats. And I fucking love sports bikes. And I guess I learned just recently that that bike, um, the values have always hurt them. Because in the tt in 1989 two riders were killed riding them steve henshaw and uh, phil McAllen both in one in one fucking race so no wonder they they're not that uh, they're, they're not that loved and there's this feeling of more engine than the rear chassis or 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 uh, or brake but you know i never I'm not gonna uh, i quite them. like
1: the mv brutali oh you do exhaust a new one particular. that's new is it yeah, well, I don't know whether it's new or not, but like, the new sexy exhaust system on it, I mean. Oh, always, it's always like those. always yeah. liked them. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, flawless. yeah, yeah. It's very nice. Um, although, from an event point of view, I was watching an episode of Harry's Garage the other day, uh, bless him. And uh, he was talking about having some custom bike build for this Sand Raiders thing, which I'd never heard of, which I think I sent you the link to. I don't know if you had a chance to have a look at it. But it's essentially Gentleman's Dakar Light. If you like, so you go to Mexico, and they ship you, you need to provide a bike or you can rent a bike off them. And it's a week's worth of I think you do about like, two and a half thousand kilometers or something in a week, or something like that. So it's not a you know, you, you do the miles through Morocco, and they've set it up to do all these different stages, you say every night in nice hotels, come on, we're not savages. Um, but they'll ship the bike down for you to from wherever it's coming from and you have to have the right insurance and so forth, but you can live your Dakar fantasy and it's like two and a half thousand euros.
0: Yeah.
1: I've got a new model to train for. I'm not sure how
0: much of a Dakar fantasy I, I have, um, I I, I also like riding around in the desert. Well, I also, that sort of thing. I also feel like, uh, yeah, I mean, but but, oh, but it's no like Mark. It,
1: they, they've chosen picturesque routes because it's not the Dakar, you know, so they, it's like through the mountains and through all this sort of stuff. So they've chosen what looks to be a really gorgeous route, at least from looking at the from the from the information. Harry did it last year and said he really he thought it was awesome. I didn't see any videos about it. Maybe I just missed them.
0: Well, um but yeah, Mark, if you ever want to have a, a, a desert riding fantasy like we should you should fly here and we should go down and see Mark Newton in Toto Santos and take But his... I don't want to get
1: shot. I want to go and have the, Toto
0: the Santos is, is not that's not that's well I mean that's that it's a touristy place look it up look it up it's it's a touristy spot Toto Santos it'd be the the shooty bit is up by the border
1: well either way I quite like the idea of it but look, I mean reality is I'm gonna have to I'm I've been eyeing up Honda um, CRX 250 rallies um i think things like that i'm thinking yeah. Yeah, that'll do me
0: well the get other thing the other thing you you should do is um since um certainly since i when i picked up riding again um i was amazed at how the kit has changed so basically mm. oh, now yeah. you can get like kevlar jeans and a kevlar check shirt that does better protection than um the, your leathers so the whole business of oh i'm too fat to fit into my leathers now i need to slim down it, yeah it, i'm gonna need to buy
1: in stuff anyway yeah but yeah. um especially if i'm going off road the leather's it, it's anyway. also
0: it's also like a whole adventure finding the equipment because it's actually quite hard to step away from so what i bought i bought this um armored vest thing and it's got foam in the elbow. And it's quite hard to step away from what I used to have with that elper and thing, like on a hard armoured elbow. It's hard to, it, it's weird to step away from hard plastic and know that this soft foam is gonna provide more protection because this soft foam's this like clever fucking material that goes ultra hard when you hit it. So it's like soft and flexible until it's hit. And then when it's hit, it's super, it's it's super hard. And right, those non-Newtonian fluids and so forth. Yeah. yeah yeah so so it's so between that and so if you wear that armor and then you wear like a kevlar shirt like a czech kevlar shirt that like could pass as a normal like not set not classy but you know like a a, a you know you could wear it in the pub and not look like you're wearing a motorcycle kind of thing those things have more slide than leather it's it's absolutely brain out it's you you need to uh, adjust your like perception of of what's possible with it um because i was thinking about it because i kind of rushed the learning and what with you the important thing for me was was getting jeans that were see if if i sit on a sport if i sit on a jigsaw in the trousers that i'm wearing at the moment wearing the tennis shoes i'm wearing at the moment i fit fine if I do the same thing wearing boots and my leathers, I can't get my foot onto the peg easily. Well, that's bloody dangerous. So one of my main goal was to get things that were proper, get proper armor, but where I could actually get my leg up. So I ended up getting a size of Clim, K-L-I-M, it's the best gene maker based upon the research that I did 18 months ago. Um, I, I got a pair of them but if I don't put the belt on, they fall down there. Like they're, they're I mean, they, they, they look, they look like they're for a bloke, you know, three inch, they are for a bloke, three inches taller than me and, you know, and a lot fatter, but this way, this way I get enough play in the knee that I can, you know, and they're wide enough. So they go over the top of my boot. So I wear my old boot and the jean goes over. The, anyway, it. Anyway, it it's, uh, the whole, like getting the right kit is, uh, is, is a total, uh, it's a total fucking sport. Um, What's the most scared? I thought of this the other day. What's the most scared you've ever been in a car or on a bike? I'll go first if you're thinking. Okay. Um, I thought of this question and then I didn't have an answer. And I was thinking, well, you've got to have an answer. It's such a good question. You've got to have an answer about it. And I was thinking, well, what is most frightening times. And the most frightening times is the moment where you know, you're going to crash, where you're out of control, and you know, you're going to crash. So if I think about the time that took that that moment lasted the longest, um the occasion, because on a sports bike, the window, but usually don't have time to be scared, right? Usually just you're on it, and then you're hurt, right? You, you There's not the, the there's not the so I was pretty scared. Um, when I rode that Aprilia around Italy and I was on a bridge or I was riding on a freeway and it was a downhill and we were going onto a bridge and the joint of the bridge had like this metal section about a foot wide and it was slick with water and I just knew the front wheel was going to slide and there's nothing to do but watch the front wheel slide and hope that I didn't fall off any pavement at highway speeds. And I just was over it. And that was it. So that was scary. But, you know, but I actually think the most scared was probably in that white Ford Sierra, two litre gear that you and I own jointly Um, on the way home from the office or the gym one day, where the back snapped on me, and I caught it, but didn't correct fast enough. And the act of catching it meant that I just speared off the road and into a ditch about 80 or 85 miles an hour and I remember it going and me catching it and feeling like a hero for catching it and then immediately it wanting to spear off the road and me seeing the tree in the ditch
1: coming and just thinking fucking hell like this could be the very end and you lost your nice green jaguar bag out of the back because some little bastard came along pilfered it overnight before we can go back and empty out the car in the morning yeah
0: yeah, well, you were a trooper that that day. Thank you uh, uh, again for that. Because uh, when when the car stopped moving, I was like, "Oh, let's fucking get out of here!" And the right hand side of it was against the ditch, and and because it went in, it went across the ditch, hit a fucking tree, bounced back, went along the ditch backwards. Um, so the driver, so I tried to get out of the driver door, and it wouldn't open, and the passenger doors were against the ditch. So I opened the sunroof to get out. And walk to a pub to call you. And I remember in the pub, they looked at me as if I was like, you know, if if I was fucking ET, they looked at me the same way as like, like, like the pool ball stopped moving when I when I walked in the pub. Yeah, but I can't. Yeah, yeah, the loss of the nice green Jaguar bag still mourned to this
1: uh, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to this um, very day. So to respond, I guess. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I've had a few accidents, everyone does, if you've been on as many hundreds of thousands of miles as, as, as we have. Um, I guess I was thinking about earlier on when, uh, you, when you mentioned this, but um, the um, uh, I came when I used to I used to drive to and from my work, at Redstone from Bramley, the other village near when I was living in Risley near Reading. And there was a back roads route that you can no, route we're back in England. Now, there was a back roads route. Um, that you could go from my house to the office and you got an hour for lunch, but it was about a 15 minute drive, but I would still go home for lunch because I knew that road really well and you could get, I could do that route in about seven or eight minutes. So therefore you could have about 45 minutes at home, having a nice bit of lunch, watch a bit of telly or whatever, and then blast back to the office. And I was doing my I think it was in in various cars, but I think at the time I was in that um angular-shaped sort of uh focus two-liter gear. Um and I came smoothly carving my nice apex lines around the corner, and there was a guy in a box van reversing round the corner. <laughs> Line <laughs> corner uh, <laughs> reversing round the corner towards me. And I was like, uh oh. Um and it was one of those runs where they're like, okay, either I'm just gonna have an at the mother and father of all rear ending into this van and I'm gonna lose that. So I just overtook him. It was like, well, you know, and I, you know, it's like roll the dice here, buddy, make a saving throw. Cause if there's something coming the other way, it's gonna be worse. Yeah put it in the back. Yeah. But if it isn't, yeah, and there wasn't, yeah. um, I just overtook him at like Galactic speed <laughs> like, uh, <Yeah. laughs> like, off down the other end of the road yeah. and around the next bend before I could even react yeah. to put the horn on. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, uh, yeah that's a yeah. that's a pretty good one. And I'd never heard that yeah, one before. Kind and, of intimidating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um my other question was gonna be about books and and of course you're not reading at the moment, so I'll talk about my books and and, and then uh I've doing audio books
1: at the moment, but yeah,
0: yeah. Um I so I I uh, the book I was going to talk about was old Miles Collier's um The Archaeological Automobile and and how this is really just a, a handbook for looking after um collector cars and how to think about collector cars how to think about um the automobile as a historical thing if you care about cars if you have any interesting cars the book is worth picking up um it's $150 I mean, it's one review, the Society of Automotive Historians review, Ruben Verdi's skilled reviewer. um, His comment was that really this, it would be great if this was in paperback form. And I think this is interesting because this book was something that I was originally going to write with Michael Shanks. And then because Michael was busy um, and it wasn't going to be the... 15, $20 in the high street bookshop kind of publication, Michael, it wasn't the right thing for him to be involved in doing with his time and energy. It didn't suit his, um, what he needed to do at, at, at the time. So, one way or another, it, it never got written. Miles wrote it himself. Um, but of course, what comes out is very different from what would have been, you know, um, know what it would have been like if he and i had written if two englishmen uh you know if two uh lower middle class englishmen had written it it would be very different from if you know one of the wealthiest and and leading car collectors in the world has has written it now for all that the the book has miles's just incredibly dexterous feel for for storytelling and, and for cars in, in general, it's really exquisite. And and to reduce it to paperback and 15 bucks in the airport almost doesn't do it justice because he approaches the cars like high art and, and his book looks like high art. And the stuff that he's written um, comes across as the the musings of, of somebody who, who regards the stuff as high art rather than as you know, paperback and, and, and disposable. That's not to say, so there's a long and short is there's still room for somebody like myself to take those ideas and that aesthetic and discuss it in a way, which is accessible for people who have XR threes and, and Camaros. Um, so that's my, uh, so the,
1: so the the recent audio book I'm listening to, um, uh, is I'm on book two of Sherlock Holmes, uh, and the Cthulhu case books. So this is an this is a book, books, a series of books written by James Lovegrove, because of course, Holmes is old enough now that it's public property. Um, that So you can write with those characters because you know, Mr. C- Mr. Conan Doyle, uh, so uh, uh, A himself is long dead, and it's passed into public domain copyright is expired. Um, so he's written Cthulhuized versions of the books where, yes, Holmes is still the same sort of deductive genius. But well, actually, he was waging a long campaign against the elder gods, who were behind a lot of the evil that was going on. And there's like Cthulhu-style monsters and summonings and evil stuff going on in the deeps beneath London. And it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: well, yeah. and and actually, Mark, that's given us a, a really nice segue for 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 me to to talk about what I was going to say. Is that you know, in I asked you for favorite books. Um, one of these. Episodes a while ago, and you were like, "Well, I've been writing," and and I was going to say, "We should say, you know, you you're you've been writing these uh, uh, satirical Dungeons and Dragons novels that sort of bring our Dungeons and Dragons campaign uh, alive." um Halvar and Clarence Chronicles of Halvar and Clarence. There's a website. um
1: Well, the website's not quite up again. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's going to be, of course like not. But,
0: but you know, who's listening to this and? You know, by the time you build it, it's probably going to be up. How many people yeah. who are listening to it are actually going to go to the website anyway? But of course, all yeah, of them. this also, all every one of them. Uh, no, the other, but this also ties to, to the, the YouTube channel that we talk about all the time 44 Teeth, the motorcycling YouTube channel, and Mike Booth, because Halvar and Clarence.com sponsored Mike Booth um, on his fateful. Visit to to the TT recently, so this is why we've been invested in uh, in Mike Booth, and and Mark, you've been invested in uh, in in writing these uh, these these novels. So I'm yeah, gonna. Best wishes. So I'm gonna. Of course. I'm sorry.
1: I said, of course, best wishes to Boothie Still, I saw a video of his update from him. the other way. The guys approaching it in exactly the way you would hope he would, like an absolute hero. And I'm sure he'll show us yeah. all up as to what can be done. Yeah, um, I, I watched yeah, the beginning
0: spirit. of one video and he was looking very pale and he was saying, you know, some days are just shit. And I'm thinking,
1: I think that's inevitable. Jeez,
0: yeah. dude, you know, and there was there was one where he described the wound. Did you see that one? And the description yeah. that he'd used to do. I, I'm not going to spoil 44 teeth storytelling because it is no. um, my word is compelling. Yeah. So look on the theme of, of motorcycles. Um, I, and, and this is where I'm going to wrap. I'm going to wrap up with a little bit of trumpet blowing and, and a good new, and, and a good news story, which is that through some, um, politicking, um, the motorcycle course at San Francisco city college was due to be taken off, um, off the, the, the roster. So at the moment, there's no, motorcy- you know, if you wanted to study motorcycles at San Francisco city college for the first time in 20 years, you couldn't do it this semester. But next semester, it has been reinstated um, in small part due to the flamey letter that I wrote to the trustees of the college, which then got forwarded to the chancellor. And it seemed that that what happened was the the course appears in the books. And as far as the chancellor and the trustees were concerned, the course was going ahead. But where the rubber met the road for a couple of sort of political reasons that are too complicated to drill into here, it wasn't going ahead. And by stirring up the Hornet's nest and being like, you know, what the fuck, the motorcycle course is really good. Like, where is it? The students want it, there's faculty to teach it. What the fuck? Just by being that, it's meant that the course has now been reinstated in a meaningful way um, in the in the spring. So uh, go me, and uh, as I said <laughs> to Dana, it, it seems that, that maybe that time I spent uh, at City College wasn't, um, you know, so, uh, doing the admin stuff and the the meetings at City College wasn't actually a waste of time. That that it has tangible benefits and and improvements. Um, yeah, I, I guess the the you know there's a the bigger story with City College, which is that you know the motorcycle course is small beans in comparison to teaching English as a second language to Syrian refugees um, or to, you know, yeah, got to skill them up. Yeah. Got to skill people up. There's no having the American dream. If you can't get a foothold on it.
1: Dude, like how are you going to make America great again? If you can't even speak the language, come on. Yeah. Got to get behind it. Yeah. Get a hat. Yeah. <laughs> needs a hat. yeah. yeah. Not that but hat, no, but no, but no, play.
0: truly it's, it's carry your own culture with you. But you've got to skill up and integrate into society, haven't you? Uh, uh, That's all right. uh, Yeah, yeah. So apparently there are 300 languages spoken in California at the moment, the same as it was in the 1840s before the gold rush. Shit, bro, I
1: didn't even know there were 300 languages still being spoken.
0: (laughs) Yeah, in California, there were 300 languages. But the Native Americans in California had had 300 languages, apparently. When I did that, when I did that American history course, that was one of the eye popping things about, when you think of the, when you think of Native Americans, you need to think of it as a hodgepodge of all sorts of different cultures. That's it's a patchwork of cultures because it was small tribes, you know, each of which Mm. had their own cultures. And it's absolutely fascinating, fascinating history. I'd like to study the more warlike ones there were some warlike ones near here. I, of course, am interested in these. Ollie's been studying the uh, Ohlone people that were in this part of, uh, but they seem, you know, they seem to be pretty ewokky. I'm not so interested in the oh, ewokky types.
1: <laughs> Garlands of flowers and pacifism. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, but but is that just what you we need to do. bring a few stormtroopers rather than ewoks? Tell exactly, you a bit. Of is, fire that, going.
0: But is that just what we take from them? Right, that when we look back on how their lives were you know we like the idea of it being you know a simple pastoral paradise it probably wasn't like that was it it's probably more like more it's probably more like the homeless people oh, no. are <laughs> now
1: like ewok, on ewok knife action yeah yeah could be like every ewok for themselves yeah yeah well
0: look on that super incongruous note let me bring this round beach wow on that, <laughs> rambling and it, is that copyright? Are we going to be done
1: for copyright now? On that, it was on the Ewoks cartoon, as I recall, from when, I, when we were kids. They used to be like "be hour when anything unusual or or extreme happened. Yeah, like you know, an, an ATST kick through the back of that little mud hut. Yeah, <laughs> and then they'd be like, ah, run away, be chilawa. Yeah, but then get them back with big like logs on swings and stuff later on because you know, yeah. much like Avatar, the locals have got to win. Yeah 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 yeah
0: yeah well, look on that um in Congress, unusual note, let me thank you for your time. It's all good, and uh bid uh our listeners adieu Our <laughs> listener <laughs> yeah, me whilst I'm editing it adieu
1: <laughs> class oh, perfect ending. This episode
0: has been brought to you by Grand Touring Motorsports as part of our motoring podcast network. For more episodes like this, tune in each week for more exciting and educational content from organizations like the Exotic Car Marketplace, The Motoring Historian, Brake Fix, and many others. If you'd like to support Grand Touring Motorsports and the Motoring Podcast Network, sign up for one of our many sponsorship tiers at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. Please note that the content, opinions, and materials presented and expressed in this episode are those of its creator, and this episode has been published with their consent. If you have any inquiries about this program, please contact the creators of this episode via email or social media, as mentioned in the episode.